The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Historical accounts. Uh, Luke makes this clear in the beginning as he states his purpose in the gospel account. He wrote to substantiate those that were eyewitnesses of Christ's life. He gave a written record for posterity, much as a chronicler would write down historical events. The two accounts of Matthew and Luke were written from a human perspective. That is, what did people see? Uh, what did they know? What did they believe? What were the consequences of what they saw? Paul wrote in the book of Galatians, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. That's the history of the timeline from the perspective of those who encountered this man who is named Jesus. Now today I'd like for us to take a different look. This is a prehistorical perspective. And by prehistory, uh, I don't mean a false view that man has a prehistory because he doesn't. We, we know when man was created. We find that information out in the first and second chapters of Genesis. So we're not talking about any kind of prehistory of man, but we're talking about prehistory before the world was ever created, before what we read in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. And so this is to go back before time began. And at least the, a part of this message will concern the divine mind before the first man was created. I want to speak of Christ's birth as it was perceived by him. What did he see and what did he know that was about to happen? Our text this morning then is not the usual accounts that we read at Christmas. We've done that. We did it last night. We read from Matthew and Luke. And then today, once again, in the congregational reading, we read from the book of Luke. But today we're going to take a different passage uh, I like to do this sometimes in Christmas messages as the Lord allows. And I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Paul's epistle to the Philippian church, Philippians. And if you'll look at chapter 2, our study is about the God of heaven who humbled himself to come to this earth to be a baby born in a Bethlehem cattle trough. And so this message is about the greatest of all miracles, it's greater than the creation of this world. It's greater than the miracle of God forming man out of the dust of the earth and then breathing into him the breath of life. Some say the greatest miracle that occurs is when a person uh, comes to Christ in faith. When God takes a man, a woman who is dead and trespasses in sin, and he takes that spiritually lifeless person and changes them, regenerates them, and energizes them, through the power of the Holy Spirit in them. The Spirit works upon the soul to make a new creature in Christ. Now, the new birth is certainly an extraordinary miracle, but the miracle that we're discussing today is far, far greater than that. This is the almighty, transcendent God, the omnipotent God, appearing in human flesh. This is the incarnation, a miracle that was foreign to Jewish belief, a miracle that was said to be impossible to the philosophical minds of both the Greeks and the Romans. Our reading today, I think, is perhaps one of the most profound of all Scripture. It certainly is a concept that stretches 
human understanding. In fact, this is far beyond our ability to know. And I think this is one of those texts that just requires us to stand and to read with reverence and then bow our heads in respect to the Lord God. Let's stand as we read this text. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse number 5. Philippians 2, verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great text that we read today. How profound it is. Lord, help us as we look into it. There's no way that we can measure the depths of it, but give us some understanding today. And we glorify your name for what Jesus Christ did in coming into this world. Bless us, Lord, as we consider your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most remarkable aspects of this passage is the plain, simple statement of facts concerning Jesus. If we were to start reading in chapter 1 and verse number 1 and then read down to chapter 2, verse number 5, where we began today, we wouldn't find the Apostle Paul making a case for the pre-existence of Christ. There are no arguments that are pushing back against those who would deny his deity. The people that Paul spoke to were not in doubt of who Jesus was. They weren't teaching any heresies against his incarnation. And so instead of arguing, Paul opens up with what he believed and what they believed to be irrefutable truth. And he steps into this core truth of Christianity in verse number 6 by saying Christ being, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. And that's a statement of the past, a reflection of what Jesus was before he entered into this world. Now, I'd like to look at that statement for a moment as our first observation today. This is the unarguable truth that Paul speaks, that the Son is the essence of God, who being in the form of God. How could Paul so easily make that statement when this was written within a few years of the events of Christ's life? Philippians was written within 60 to 70 years of the Incarnation, Uh, approximately about 30 years after the crucifixion. And can you imagine what it would be like if Jesus had waited to come in our time? What if I said to you that in the fullness of time, in our time, that about 60 years ago that God became a man and that he was born as a baby in 1956? Do you think that I could easily say that when there are so many of you that are here that were alive at that time? When Paul wrote this, there were people who remembered. There were those who were there when he was born. The year that Jesus was born and died was their 1956 and their 1980. 
And so do you think that I could so easily say this when I know for certain that there would be people on every side that would refute that and say this is not true if it wasn't true? Now the key to Paul's bold statements uh, uh, in saying this about Christ is explained by Luke in the reference that I made earlier. In Luke chapter 1, for as many as have taken into hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. This is history. What we read here is history. This is to be believed even more than you believe any other facts of history because what Paul did was to rely upon historical facts and people that were living at that time who could affirm that it was true. And so he makes no elaborate arguments for this great Christian doctrine. He just begins by telling us that the Son of God became a man. And that is the basic fact that this entire passage relies on. That it was God who came. Jesus is God. Interestingly, there's not one time in the Scriptures that Jesus said, I was born. He said, I came. He said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. None of us ever says that we came into the world. Each of us says that we were born. But Jesus didn't say that, and that's because he pre-existed. He pre-existed as God, and this text has no meaning at all to us if Jesus is not God. Now, now we know that there are many that dispute this, the implications of it. They say, yes, well, Jesus was in the form of God. And they say that means that he was a man who had some godlike qualities. That he was a man that could do miracles. That he was a created being, something like a superman, who was able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. But that's not the Jesus that Paul is speaking of. Look for just a moment at the word being. Who being in the form of God. Now that's a very important word. Being is about a person's essential nature. Being is what a person is. And it says that he was in the form. And that word in the Greek does not mean what a person is on the outside, like a shape or something that's a copy of something else, but not the real thing. Oh, this is a word that refers to attributes, to the character, to the essential parts that make a person what he is. And so we can take the word as Paul intended it and understand the meaning when he says and tells us that Jesus is God, that Jesus has all the attributes of God. And before time began, he was in glory, existing as God in all the glory of God. There was nothing lacking in him that kept him from being God. That's clearly stated in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus pre-existed as God. Other passages like Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 17 support that. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. He was God above, the creator of all things, and he became a man in the fullness of time in Bethlehem. Jesus proclaimed this truth in John 17 when he prayed that the Father would restore to him the glory that he had before he came to this earth. I wish I had time to 
go through many, many other Bible passages where Jesus taught his deity. You remember, I hope, in the long series that we had in Matthew, that there were times that I was very careful to point out when Jesus made statements, sometimes subtly not, and sometimes not so subtly, that he was God. No one mistook what he meant. The Jews certainly didn't misunderstand what Jesus was saying because they took him to trial over this very issue that he claimed to be God. So Paul preached the deity because the Son of God claimed that he was the almighty, sovereign God. And so I think it was needful for us to emphasize that, to to look at that point, to see this is so monumental that Jesus was not just a man. He wasn't an angel that was stuffed into a human body. He was God who took on a different form, a different nature when he became man. Now that leads me then to our second observation, which is the Son emptied himself to become man. Now since we clearly understand the Son was the divine essence of God, now we can start to look at his incarnation from the divine perspective. What did Jesus see? What did he do? What was his viewpoint of Christmas? Now let's look back at verse number 6 again. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was in the form of God. That is, he had all the attributes of God. He was being God. And then the next part says, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's a little bit hard for us to understand. The ESV translates it this way. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Son didn't consider his position with the Father and with the Holy Spirit as God in heaven, a position that he had to grasp, that is to hold on to, as if he could not give it up for any reason at all, that if saving us meant that he would have to come to this earth, be born as a man, he was willing to give up that equality that he had in heaven to become made just like a creature. He was not going to let the fact of his glory keep him from doing that. And so the son was willing to give it up because that's the only way that the plan of redemption would work. His love for man was too great for him to think of himself and to let us die without remedy. And so what did he do? Verse number 7, But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He made himself. Made is the Greek word kenoo. It means to empty. And that's why this passage is often called the kenosis of Christ or the emptying of Christ or the divesting of Christ. But what does that really mean? What what did Jesus empty himself of? And that's where things start to get a little bit tricky. Because what God did next is the only time that this was ever done. He's the only being that ever existed this way. And this is why this truth is so often rejected. To this day, the Jews believe that this is impossible, that God could become a man. And so what did he empty himself of to become a man? Well, some say that it was his deity. They can't, they can't conceive of what theologians call the hypostatic union. That is a doctrine that says that the attributes of God and the nature of man came together in a stasis that is in, in balance, whereby each of the two natures were fully retained in their completeness. That he was both God and 
man, that he was fully God and he was fully man. Colossians 2 verse 9 says that, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so when we say that Christ emptied himself, we don't mean that he emptied himself of his deity. God could never do that. God can't be anything other than God. He can never separate himself from his attributes. There is no concept of God unless he is eternal. That is, he always is who he is. As Exodus 3.14 says, God said, I am that I am. He is eternally unchangeable. Now a hint to the answer of what Christ divested himself of is revealed in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, where Peter wrote, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. I think probably most of you recognize that as a reference to the transfiguration. And that's when the disciples were able to see a small glimpse of Jesus' glory. His glory was veiled by human flesh. And so here's the answer to our question. What did Christ empty himself of? He emptied himself of glory. His glory was covered up by his flesh, which had profound effects upon his person. And if his glory had not been hidden from men when he came, then there's no one who would have been able to live in his presence. No one has ever seen the glory of God in its fullness and lived. And so every time that we find God manifested in the Scriptures, His glory is all, the full glory of God is always hidden from man. Christ did not give up His deity. He couldn't give it up. He divested Himself of glory and added to Him humanity. Now the greatest miracle of the Incarnation is that the unchangeable God took on humanity. I know if you're good students of the Word, you've got to be sitting there and thinking, well, if God is unchangeable, then how did He take on humanity? Isn't that a change? And that's part and parcel of this miracle because the humanity and the deity are entirely separate. That humanity did not change deity. As God, as the, as the Son of God, He was the same This mind-boggling thing happened, but his humanity did not change, and his being as God did not change. That's really the essence of the hypostatic union. There are two natures that are in one being. The divine attributes did not affect his humanity, and his humanity did not affect his divine attributes. He is deity. This is why Jesus got hungry. He got thirsty. He was tired. He slept. He was emotional. He had all human characteristics. His nature was a perfect human nature, but still it was a human nature. He was born of a virgin. So if you ask, well, was he different from Adam? Did he have a different nature? Well, no, not different than Adam in this respect, that the nature that he received was what Adam had before he sinned. There was no sin in Jesus Christ. Adam was created in innocence, and to preserve the innocence of the nature in Jesus Christ, he was born of a virgin. The human nature did not pass to him because he was born of the woman. So he was fully human with the same nature that Adam had before he fell. Now let's consider then Christ's divine perspective of Christmas just a little bit further. The Son of God 
didn't grasp, he didn't hold on to glory, which did have profound implications for him. Now let's carefully notice what happened to Jesus because he gave up his glory. Well, first, and he became a man, first of all, he endured subordination. And by endured, I don't mean that he was unhappy to do it or that he was forced to do it. I mean, this is simply a consequence of the willingness to step down from glory. It meant that he would have to put himself beneath the authority of the Father. In his humanity, it would become his duty to subject himself to the Father's will. And that's the key to the passage where you read in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed, not my will, but thine be done, as he spoke to his Father. It's key to his statements that he said he came to this earth to do the Father's will. I don't know if any of you read theological journals, or if you like to read blogs where people are discussing historical doctrines of the faith. And I would say, unbeknownst to you, there is a rift that is currently making a division between some very prominent theologians today. The issue is Christ's subordination. And I'm not talking about an argument that's taking place between heretical theologians, but between sound, good men who trust, we trust their interpretations and their systematic theology. And this is an argument that is serious, serious enough that among these great theologians that we trust, there are charges of heresy that are being thrown back and forth at each other. This is happening today. And what is it that's causing the problem? The issue is subordination. And here's the question. Is the subordination of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is that subordination eternal? Or did it only happen when Jesus stepped down to become a man? Some believe that Christ was always subordinate to the Father. Some people who aren't theologians, they get thrown off by the terminology that's used. Uh, some people, when they hear the first, second, and third persons of the Godhead, they think that that's a grading system of the Godhead. No, there is no such thing. That's just merely a designation so that we understand that there are three persons. God the Father is always spoken of first. God the Son is always second. God the Holy Spirit is always third. That's just an identifying thing. That is not a ranking system. Each of them is God, fully God. Each of them has a role to fulfill within the Trinity, within the Godhead. And the Son is, much, is as much God as the Father. The Holy Spirit is as much God as the Son. And they are all as much God as each other. It is not a ranking system. All are equal in power and authority. But there is this argument of eternal subordination. And I think that, in effect, it denies this. One side says that the Son has always been in subjection to the Father, but if that's true, if subjection is an eternal thing, that would seem to imply a functional inequality, if not an actual inequality. We take the position that there was no subordination until the Son of God stepped down and willingly placed Himself beneath the Father's authority. Now, we've heard the Christmas story so many times that when it comes to the concept of the Incarnation, it sounds simple to us. God became a man. God became a man. Don't ever get so familiar or so complacent with this to think that you know what was going on. This is so profound, the human mind cannot grasp this. So if you think that you've arrived in your understanding of Christmas and what Jesus did 
then I would tell you to back off. Sit down, assume a fetal position. Because you really don't understand it at all. Jesus said he did this. He subjected himself to the Father. Something that had never before happened in eternity. In the prehistory of God's being. He said, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean that God the Son and God the Father had different wills because they didn't. That was just Jesus' way of stating his unqualified devotion to the submission of the Father. Then next, in his view of the incarnation, he endured deprivation. He was deprived of the use of his attributes. He willingly set those aside. He said in John 5.30, just an amazing thing when you think this is God speaking, he said, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. So as a human, Jesus was fully dependent upon the Father and on the Spirit, just as you are dependent and I are dependent on the Father and the Spirit. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane where the Spirit came to strengthen him, and Jesus would have died there from the mental stress and the anguish of what he was going through if the Spirit had not come to strengthen him. And so he limited his attributes, those that would save him, and he placed his life into the Father's hands. While he was on this earth, he did the acts of God by the power of the Spirit that was in him, not because he had superhumanity. When I think back a few years uh, to our trip to Israel, the day that was most meaningful to me was when we were on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was on the same sea when there was a storm that arose and he was sleeping in the back of the boat and there he was as a man sleeping and the disciples were afraid and they woke him and he spoke and the sea was calm. How did he do that? Have you thought about it? How did he do that? Did he do that as God or did he do that as man? He did it as the God-man. The man who could sleep in the boat and yet was dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit in him. Now on that day on the sea, our tour guide pointed out a valley between two mountains. It's called the Valley of the Dove. And it was through that valley that Jesus walked all the way to Jerusalem. He walked. He was deprived of his omnipresence in the human body. He had to walk. I mean, literally walk up those hills, down, up and down, all of that terrain between Galilee and Judea, he walked. He was omniscient. And he didn't give up his omniscience when he became a man. And yet as a, as a human, he did say, I don't know the hour of my own return. He said, only the Father knows this. Why? Because he was self-limiting. He was deprived of the use of those divine attributes. You remember when they came to arrest him in the garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus said, I could call 12 legions of angels to come and set me free. And when he stood before Pilate, he said to Pilate, you have no power at all against me. And yet, they arrested him, didn't they? And they crucified him, didn't they? And that's because he limited his power for the cause for which he came. Thirdly, Jesus endured degradation, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, I suppose 
that we would think if God was to become a man, if he was going to do something that most would consider such a ridiculous thing to do, at least what he would do is to maintain his dignity, that he would become rich, he would live like a king and be born in a palace. But as you know, when the wise men came, they didn't find the king of kings in a palace. I don't think they found him in a stable either. I think the nativities are wrong. The, the scripture says that they found Jesus in a house, a very modest house that was the home of a poor carpenter and his wife. So maybe we get over that part and we say, well, if not a palace, if not a king born into a palace, then perhaps in a fine house at least, and we expect him to be fairly well-to-do and to reach a prominent position. But he didn't. He was an apprentice to his father, working as a stonemason, most likely, since that's probably what it meant to be a carpenter. And still going further, we see that Jesus was, it says here, in the form of a servant. Now, here we see the word form again in our English translation, but that's not the same word that we saw before. This is a different Greek word. And this time it does mean the outward form. In other words, he was a man who looked like a man. You couldn't tell that he was God by looking at him. Everything that humans did, he did. Are humans born? So was he. Do they eat? He ate. Do they sleep? He slept. He had the form. In every way, he was a man. And the verse tells us what kind of man he was. Um... How he came is even more surprising to us because it says that he came in the form of a servant. And let me explain that word to you. That word servant is often used in the Bible. We find it over and over again in the King James Version. We find it in other translations of Scripture. But we rarely see this word in its, in its harshest form. The word is doulos. And it means a slave. Jesus was degraded to become a slave to men. And if you don't like the term slave, and you don't like it because Christians become a slave to God, then you have missed the full impact of Christ's degradation. When he viewed the incarnation from the divine perspective, he saw himself becoming the lowest that a human could be. He became a slave. He humbled himself to the lowest place. And you need to understand the extreme difference that's here in the levels from going God, from God to man. He was the very highest degraded to be the very lowest. So he hit rock bottom in his manhood to become exalted to the highest in his deity. Second Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And then we come to the fourth view of the incarnation. He endured humiliation. Verse 8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He became obedient to the death of the cross. There we find another lower. The lowest. This is the lowest place. It's the slave who dies by crucifixion. The worst of criminals were reserved for the cross. He was numbered with transgressors, the worst of the worst. Thieves and murderers, seditionists and robbers were the ones who died by the cross. And so did he. He took the place of a, literally took the place of a seditionist and a robber when Barabbas was set free instead of him. How could God endure such vile rejection if he is Lord? The son was 
omnipotent God. He was omniscient God. And yet he knew that he would go through every step of this because he planned it from the very beginning. And the way that he got to the cross was also through his humility. There was a mock trial. He was lied against. He was stripped naked and beaten. And then in a mocking gesture, they made fun of his kingship when they took a robe, a purple robe, and they put it on him. And then they turned around and they stripped that robe from him and they drove nails into his hands and feet on the cross. And then they lifted up that cross and they dropped it down into a hole and he was lifted up. And when he was lifted up, he wasn't wearing that purple robe. He was exposed. He was totally naked. There was no loincloth on Jesus. They looked at him. They jeered his shame. They looked at every inch of him. And they called out for him to save himself if he is the Christ. And how belittling they were to him. They could see his naked, bleeding body. What is this beaten farce who calls himself God? That's the divine view of the incarnation. That's what Christmas looks like from the eternal side. But no doubt the very worst of his emptiness was this fifth view. He endured separation. He never experienced this before. Eternity afforded no examples of separation. He was separated from the eternal love of the Father. When Jesus said, I and my Father are one, that was a statement of unity, not separation. In his earthly ministry, he he worked closely with his Father. He always did the Father's will. Always. Every day for 33 years, he was the perfect son. For 33 years, he did everything the father told him to do, being obedient all the way to the cross. And here he is now at the cross. History brought him to this place, to the cross. And now he knew what the father must do to him. His divine view of this was the most dreaded part. Paul said, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's the clincher. That's the absolute worst, that He would become sin for us. And what that meant is the automatic rejection of the Father, because the Father cannot look on sin. And so in three hours of pitch black darkness, the fury of hell was unleashed upon Him, and He was punished to the nth degree. Nothing was held back. He received no mercy. Wrath was poured out, And all that Jesus could do was to cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And do you know that's the only time that Jesus addressed the Father as my God? And it was because he couldn't call him the Father at this time. That's as low as it gets. That's what went on in the divine mind as he envisioned Christmas. That's a quite different view from ours, isn't it? No Santa Claus. No holiday lights, no greeting cards, no gifts under the Christmas tree. Christmas to Jesus was to have a bitter death in view. And yet, perhaps the most surprising, remarkable thing that came out of all of it is that the Bible also says this in Hebrews, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amazing love, how can it be that Christ, my God, should die for me? 
And that brings us to our last observation for this Christmas. The Son is exalted to Lordship. Verse number 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now the divine perspective of Christmas also signals this, that there is a downward path that would lead Christ actually to his highest glory. He emptied himself of glory with the view that he would obtain more glory than he had before. Look at the phraseology of verse 9. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him. We see that word exalt many times in scriptures. For instance, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Exalt is a fairly simple word. But here in the text of Philippians, it becomes an interesting, very complex word. Because this entire phrase, hath highly exalted him, is one word in the Greek. And it's the only time it's ever used in the Scripture. It's in this passage. God hath highly exalted him. And of course, that refers to Jesus Christ. His exaltation was the highest above all. The descent of the Son of God led to the highest ascent in all of creation. He's the Son of God, the Son of Man, ascended. Lowly man became exalted man. And here the Scripture says that He's exalted over heaven and earth and hell. Things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. And an amazing thing about it too is that we have this kinship with Christ. He became a man. And we become sons of God through the salvation that he promised to a people who would be exalted and would rule and reign with him. There's one commentator who said, I can't can't remember who it was, but he he kind of looked at this from from a somewhat selfish way. And he said, I want to be in heaven to see all the mockers and the scorners and the priest and Judas and even the devil himself bow before Jesus Christ and confess that he is Lord. The ones that nailed him to the cross, the devil who incited them to do it, that put it into the hearts of men, are going to look at him for all eternity from the depths of the fires of hell. And they'll suffer all eternity because of what they did to him. Now perhaps that is a humanistic view, but we also know this, that when we get to heaven, our minds are going to be changed to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see that, and we'll see the justice of it, as people have to suffer in hell because they rejected the Son of God. In heaven, we're given the mind of Christ to rejoice in the perfect justice of it all. And then finally, there's this. What is that name that is above all names? Well, Jesus is His human name. And for your edification, that's the way that He's going to appear in all of eternity. He will always appear as the exalted man. That's the way that you'll see Him. But the name that is above all names is not Jesus. That's a little bit confusing maybe to the passage. It's not Jesus. The name that is above all names is Lord. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His glory is going to be restored. He emptied himself of glory, but he will be filled to the fullest because of that willingness to descend. Now, have you ever thought about this? How can you add to the glory of Christ? 
And do you know this is the best part from the human perspective? That the Bible says that we add to the glory of Christ. That as believers we add to glory. His purpose, the reason that He came, He lived, He died, He arose, He ascended. In order to do this, to claim a people for His name. To exalt them to become jewels in the crown of the head of Jesus Christ. What a marvelous thing. Whichever view that you take of Christmas, the outcome is always good. It's best for us, and it was best for Christ. It was the joy that was set before Him, and it's the joy for us who believe in Christ. And so we can go home today, and we can rejoice in Christmas. Rejoice with your family. Talk to them about how great that Christmas is from the human perspective, but then take some time to be amazed at the divine perspective of it. What took place in the divine mind? How could Christmas... Be joy. Only the divine mind of Jesus Christ could see it that way. And friends, that is beyond our comprehension. The Son of God descended. He looked forward to Christmas in a much different way than we look back at it. He saw the joy of His suffering, that it would bring us salvation. And we look back at it, and we see the joy of not having to suffer because of what He did for us. Luke the historian wrote, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born in this day in the city of David a Savior Who is what? Christ the Lord. The name above all names. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again we come to you rejoicing in the salvation of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in Him, what He came into this world to do for lost sinners. He descended from the exalted place in heaven, became the lowest of all to go to the death of the cross, and there He bought salvation for us through His own blood, His death on that cross. Well, we stand amazed in the presence of this man who did this for us, this God who became man to do it for us. Lord, I pray for someone here today who hasn't trusted You as Savior. Maybe they just came because it's Christmas and this is the thing that you do on Christmas, but they'd never really thought about anything other than just the baby in a manger and presents that are given and the fun that happens at Christmas. Lord, there's an awesome story here. There is just a a background to this. Something that took place pre-history, before the world was ever created, when God, in His determination, said, I'm going to send my own Son to die for a people that is rebellious, that is stiff-necked, that is haters. They're haters of me. And yet I love them so much that I'm going to change all that. I'll give my life to die for them and to make them righteous and fit for heaven. And we thank you for that. I pray for some soul today who might realize what Christ did because of Christmas. Thank you, Lord. We give you the praise for it. Bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 
or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.